0: everyone. I'm your host, Mallory Mercer, Director of Advocacy and Community Engagement for the Star Coalition. On this podcast series, we're going to shed light on some of the most stigmatized and misunderstood areas of the mental health industry. Our hope is that through this podcast, we can bring transparency and light to a system that is so heavily scrutinized. We aim to share vital information about a multitude of mental health topics while spreading the message that research equals hope. Today, I'm sitting down with Marcus McCarty Towers, patient recruitment and engagement coordinator from Midwest Clinical Research in Dayton, Ohio. Marcus had an 18 plus year career in massage and neuromuscular therapy and brings a wealth of experience in leadership and customer service. Hey,
1: good morning, Mallory. Thanks so much for uh, having me on. I appreciate it. This is, uh, this is a real honor.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to come on today, Marcus, and speak with us about research site recruitment. Before I get into all of our questions, I would love to hear what attracted you to your role in Midwest Clinical Research and your day-to-day routine.
1: Oh, uh, what attracted me to clinical research? Honestly, nothing. One day I just decided I needed something more, maybe something that meant more to the community. I was looking on social media uh, one day and a central recruiter by the name of of Randy, she knew that we were looking for more recruiters in our area to do the same job that she does. I I don't know. It sounded like it was going to be a little bit more money. And so I I looked into it and um, then that's what got me started. I, I first spoke with with Joel. He's uh, just a, a wonderful man and I uh, had a, a really engaging meeting with him. And I learned all about what the expectations are and what good this could be for the community. And hate to be a cliche, but a light
0: bulb went off. That's wonderful. So I think it's interesting that you said at first you're attracted to the role because it was a better opportunity for you. And then as soon as you learn more about it, you realize that you were doing it for so much more than that. And so I want to go a little bit deeper. Was there any type of training that you had done in your past to prepare you for this role at Midwest Clinical Research?
1: I think so. I think customer service is a much needed factor in the research world. One of those core skills that, I don't know, I, I bet you or, or any of your listeners would be in agreement that it's it's kind of a critical critical in a successful exchange to think anytime we have a, a person-to-person interaction, it's that ability to listen, right? And so most people will tell you that any experience with a company would be improved tremendously if the person on the other line wasn't just waiting for their turn to
0: speak. I think that is so important, especially in your position. Something that's rare and that I really admire about you and your role, Marcus. I know we were able to talk before this and you had shared with me about your personal connection, the loved one living with mental illness. And you mentioned Mm -hmm. that you have only been in the industry for the past few years. As a family member, though, were you not drawn to this field as a young adult?
1: Right. We're talking about uh, my brother. He was diagnosed at the age of, I think it was like five or six, really, really early on for someone to be diagnosed with schizophrenia. No, I think is the answer to your question. Just because I... I didn't really know he was sick. Right. I mean, that's just how my brother was. And, um, you know, he being five years old, uh, we have a four year difference. I'm younger. So when he first started presenting with issues, I just wasn't aware cause I was too young. And then as I started growing up and learning, where's my brother, why isn't he here? And the questions I was asking were met with, uh, he's at a hospital, right? So they're just, they're the ones that are caring for him right now. And, and that just, was how it was. you know? It was never really hidden from me that my brother had an illness. They did say that you know, he had schizophrenia. And if I had questions, they were uh, happy to answer. Um, but I didn't. I just knew that my brother was sick. And so he was somewhere uh, getting the help that he needed. It's like they knew that there wasn't anything they could do for him. So they just did the best they could.
0: I think that's what so many families do, but it was so brave of them to be willing to reach out for help. I think that's Mm. the hardest thing to do sometimes. So when did you realize that your brother needed more help than your family could personally provide for him?
1: Uh, I wasn't there for, I mean, I I was probably in another room, but I mean, I wasn't in the same room as them, but my mom had just sort of, whether it was uh, intuition or just an ominous feeling, she was just sort of woken up out of a dead sleep. And my, my brother at the time, was struggling really hard with uh, the the voices that that only he could hear. And from his version of the story, you know, they were just trying to compel him, the, the voices to act violently towards my mother. And I think it was a really pivotal moment for her. She knows that moms can fix anything. Right. And so her being the expert at being a mom that she is, she knew that the best way she could help him was by getting him to some place and, and getting him to some people that could actually uh, be a benefit.
0: I can only imagine how difficult that must have been on your mother. Tell us what was the next step for your family on leading your brother to a life of recovery after that night?
1: Yeah, sure. So he started attending uh, several different hospitals throughout the country. I think there were a few in Ohio, a couple in Florida, and I think Tennessee as well, if if memory serves right. He just bounced from facility to facility. Nothing uh, on him I mean his he was responding well to treatment uh, I think maybe just maybe growing out of certain facilities and needing to move to a next one that could deal with with the level of trauma he had gone through um, and his level of psychosis uh, he tried several different forms of medication and counseling and it took a lot to find the right cocktail um, I remember it being very difficult for him at times to formulate sentences it was difficult for him to socially speaking to to get on well with with other of his peers um i think even though he's he's going to be 49 soon he still really only has the social capacity of maybe like um you know a senior in high school or something like that so learning how to cope with with everyday struggles that you know any of us go through uh having to pay bills or deciding um, where best to put our, our money and our resources. These are the kind of things that he just never really got to learn to do. So that's why he would go to different facilities to try to, to help him manifest that for himself. Uh, but it seemed to be working, you know, like I alluded to earlier, he's, he's going to be 49 years old and that's quite a bit older than he was given as an original life expectancy.
0: Well, I'm so glad to hear that he is doing well in his treatment. And it sounds like you guys have really tried your best to give him every viable treatment option that there is. So I just want to ask, has he ever been involved in any type of clinical research?
1: Uh, That's my recollection. Honestly, I'm not even really sure anyone in our family was even aware that clinical research was a, a possibility. And uh, I don't think we even learned that until I began my career here. And that was just a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think I think he would have liked to have been he, I, even now um, when I see him interacting with our, our family or our extended family, he really remembers what it was like to be listened to by, by my mom and my dad and um, the doctors that were in his life. And so just just through his own experience and his own intuition, I think he understands that there are people that he can influence um, just right within arm's reach that maybe don't understand how valuable it is to talk about what's going on in your life. I mean, I, I think it's becoming more commonplace these days to compare something wrong in in your central nervous system to something being wrong with your your leg or your arm. You know, I mean you you need treatment, you need treatment. You have to go get it. And my brother is really good at listening to people and convincing them to talk about what's wrong. He struggles, but I think he knows how blessed he is to be here. And I think he wants to make sure other people realize that too.
0: I love that because there are so many individuals that want to make a difference and want to help. And sometimes research isn't that option for them. So I love that she's recognized that sometimes just being a listening ear and being that peer is so influential in people's lives and can do so much. I want to thank you and just let you know that we appreciate your vulnerability and openness Mm -hmm. on this topic. And I know so many of us in this industry are here because we've been personally impacted by a mental health diagnosis of ourselves or even a loved one. So as a family member, I know all of us really let that propel our trajectory Mm -hmm. in this field. So how do you use that experience to better support other family members throughout the clinical research process?
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> I get this one uh, a lot in my own head. That's that's a great question, Mallory. Because like, how do I relate to people who have their own issues if if I really you know, don't? If I'm if I'm considered more neurotypical, then how can I relate to someone who is just experiencing so much that I I'll I'll never have the that ability to experience? And so I think well what did we do as a family they were just a i feel like a terrific example of what we all could be doing if if we if we know we have the capacity to be that open source to be that listening ear uh, and mcrc the midwest clinical research we we certainly get that here there's always the question what do you do after a person is done with the study what, what sort of resources are available and i don't think that we would even know what resources were available in our community if we didn't first understand that it was going to be difficult for a person. I mean, you, you join a study, you're given hopefully medication, but sometimes even a placebo. And then when you're done, you know, then what? You know, we've given you money. But, you know, if you're anything like my brother who's got that 17 year old mind, just go buy video games, you know. But we have to be able to point to to resources in the communities. Um, sometimes there's the need for shelter. Sometimes there's a need for um Getting back into the workforce, sometimes just wondering where that next uh, plate of food is coming from. And while we're not specifically here in that capacity to, to be that next step, we know that there are plenty of people in the community and plenty of organizations that are there and more than just our role. I think it's our duty, our responsibility to provide that listing for people. And again, I don't, I don't think we, any of us could do that if we didn't have at least one person in our family who's been through this sort of thing.
0: So from there, Marcus, let's go ahead and talk about recruitment. As we all know in this industry, recruitment is often difficult and strenuous. So what are some ways that you and Midwest Clinical Research have figured out how to best communicate with those that you are looking to recruit for a study?
1: Oh, another really good question. You're 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 good at this game. <laughs> so when I got here, I, I think what Joel said that caught my ear the most was you're going to be on the phone all the time. You're going to be on the phone all the time. And that resonated with me. Uh, The phone was ringing, sure, but the expectation was that I was going to be making these calls. And at first I was a little worried. I thought these were going to be cold calls, but they're not. These are phone calls that I'm making specifically because people have seen our advertisements at some capacity and decided to reach out. So when he said there's going to be a lot of phone calls, calls. He meant I'm going to be making a lot of phone calls. And so I did. And I just can't express to you enough how difficult it was to get people to actually answer the phone. And I really didn't understand why. If it's not cold calling, then why are people struggling so much to to respond? So something needed to change. And I think what I realized uh, fairly early on, it was us that needed to change. Phone calls are one thing for a certain demographic of people and for other people, uh, myself included, um, I'm guessing you and and most people listening to this right now, we don't answer the phone as a society anymore, but we will respond to texts and gosh, we're conditioned to do so, aren't we? You know, as soon as that vibration goes off or that tinkling sound that someone wants our attention, you know, we pick up our phone and we look at it immediately. So I tried to use that as a hook at first. Uh, I would send a text message that said, hey, I'm going to be calling you and then 10 seconds later, I would actually call them. And um, I feel like that is a tool that's being utilized throughout the recruitment community. Um, I'm certainly not the first one to do anything like that. Uh, I hear a lot um, when we talk between our facility and and other facilities in the network. But then I took it kind of one step further. Some patients had been wondering why we couldn't just do this whole exchange through texting. And the short answer is we just have way too many personal questions that we're going to ask a person. And we We lose a lot of that feeling of connectivity through text messaging. We've all sent a text that we wish we could have reworded or sent the right emoji for, right? So instead, uh, I looked through the uh, IRB approved protocols for inclusion and exclusion questions and the clinical director here, Melissa, I started to, at least for the depression indications, I started looking for the five top questions that we knew could otherwise be an exclusionary factor for bringing people in and I just started sending those as texts and the response was quite overwhelming. I think the numbers are speaking for themselves and I I won't bore you to death with them right now with the statistics, but what's good to know is that people are responding and they're responding in such terrific fashion that I think it's upped our numbers here at Midwest Clinical Research, which is amazing because the more people we reach out to, the, the better our community is going to be.
0: So with this text line, what do you think is the main factor that has made people so prone to answer?
1: trust. I think if I'm hearing our patients correctly, anytime I, well, not anytime, but there there's plenty of times when they see this phone call coming through and it says uh, something like this could be detected as spam, uh, that phone call or whatever. I mean, even though we're not spamming people, we're literally reaching out to only those people who have shown an interest. That's a thing. I mean, sometimes a phone number just isn't recognized. And as I was saying earlier, if you don't recognize the phone number, you're not going to answer it. But when I send an text message first, letting them know that this is the phone number that's going to be calling you, then, you know, they're more prone to pick up. Uh, That and I know we've all heard about keyboard warriors before where someone could, you know, in the comment section, get into a fight because, you know, I, I have the separation between me and you with this this computer is is in the way so I can I can say whatever I want. And, and so on the flip side of that, if I'm sending you a text message and it's about something sincere, it's about something that could actually help you. I think there's a cushion there also instead of a guard this time. And the cushion is maybe I can answer questions because I'm not face to face or I'm not having to hear a person's exasperated size uh, if they're on the phone or something like that. So text messaging it takes away some of that difficulty it's a, it's a great tool it's working out
0: I love that you talk about it's a cushion a little bit because sometimes it is so hard to vocalize how you're feeling, especially with a certain indication. And so that provides so much relief and trust, I think. And another thing that you and I talked about, Marcus, is different indications sometimes struggle with insomnia and they're not awake during the day when you would normally be calling them. So overall, I think this text line is just incredible. And I want to go into this transition a little bit. So how did you go about the transition from your your traditional recruitment to a text line throughout your organization
1: yeah so it was scary at first just um you know being what i think is one of the first people to, to do something like this because i might be doing something wrong as far as our overseers at the the irb are concerned i wanted to make sure that if i was going to do something like this that um i at this. I researched it a little bit first. <laughs> so uh, I first met with uh, Melissa, our clinical director, and she directed me to have a conversation with Lou, who Lou is the one who takes care of uh, our guidelines and approvals. And so I, I tried to work with him at first, and we we thought we would lo- use some of the customer-facing materials that are IRB approved. And honestly, a lot of that was. Those questions taken more like from the DSM-5, you know, the how are you feeling today, which are good and they're effective, but again, not necessarily something I would want to send through a text. So I just sort of went with it. I just sort of took those inclusion and exclusion questions and uh, I made sure that they were uh, clipped appropriately, the, the length of these messages. So uh, I think it has to be 181 characters, including spaces, if I'm going to send a text message in mass, but just to make sure I was within guidelines. Um, every question that I sent, even if it wasn't sent in mass, I, I tried to make sure it's below that word count or that character count guideline. And then I just started collecting data as um, every time I corresponded with someone uh, or or didn't, uh, I, I made sure that I recorded the, the numbers and then shared them with leadership as appropriate. And it's been neat. I honestly have never done anything at all related to research before. And so not only am I recruiting for, for someone who's doing their own research, but now in a, in a miniature microcosm, I get to do my own research and I completely understand why it's such a fascinating field now.
0: (laughs) So tell me, are you able to go in and specifically work with sponsors on certain indications of what they are looking for each time?
1: I do. Um, and so I, I, as I said earlier, I started with depression. And once I realized that was catching on, uh, then we had a sponsor for a new PTSD trial. They asked if there was anything they can do to help because sponsors are great. They always ask if there's something that they can do to help. And so I said, yes, I I want to try out this new, I, I'm calling it a, a mini text survey. Uh, and what questions would you want asked uh, is what I asked of the sponsors. And it took them a couple of days to get back to me, which is I'm honored that they even considered it. Uh, and they they did. They shared what questions they thought would be best specifically for PTSD. And then when I realized that this was an idea that was catching on, uh, I've now moved on to binge eating. And then the latest one that I sought approval for was for uh, TKA, a, a total knee replacement study.
0: That's wonderful. And it, it sounds like you're very busy. And I know you and I have talked about how so many of our sites have limited staff right now. So can you talk about from an employee standpoint, why you saw a need for this, even if it did mean on the beginning stages, doing a lot more work? What does it mean for you guys now?
1: Um, yeah. So you're not wrong. <laughs> we definitely uh, could use some more uh, staff here. I love that we're getting busier and I would I would love nothing more than to be able to talk to every single person who has an interest in what we do. I am one person and I have just only so many hours in the day. And the good thing about this mini tech survey is that, uh, within the span of just an hour or or maybe two hours, I can send out hundreds of text messages to people. I I know that not every one of them is going to be, to be responding. That would be quite overwhelming. I'm not, I'm not a robot, (laughs) but, uh, because I can send this out to so many people, then they get the ability to respond in a time that suits them best, right? So they're not just, yeah, of course, I have 10 to 15 minutes to talk to you right now. Well, now they don't have to. Now they can respond to each question when they get to it, which is what we hope happens for people when we send out a text message, right? Hi, how are you doing today? I'll respond in two hours when I realize, oh, crap, I forgot to actually respond. Uh, so now we've taken the onus off of them uh, a little bit at least. And it, it frees up my time. uh, While I'm sending texts to people, you know, of course, I don't want to be distracted during a phone call, but I can. I can absolutely make another phone call to someone in a totally different indication. And then when I see a notification come through that somebody has responded, you know, I can get back to that question when I have a free moment. Um, And it it keeps my workday flowing. I haven't quite calculated yet how much time I'm saving, but I feel like I absolutely am reaching out to more people in a broader sense than even I thought was possible. And now... It's so easy to teach that when we do get more recruitment staff here, um, maybe even someday we can have a person dedicated to totally just communicating through a a chat feature or something like that.
0: I hope that all of our sites can get back to a point where they are heavily employing everybody on the topic of recruitment and beginning process of a study, when individuals are enrolled, what do you wish family members could know about coming into a study? Because so many times the family members are the ones that are concerned about their loved one's treatment.
1: Oh gosh, that that's another great question. Um, getting back to my family it would have been so difficult for my mom at first to have signed my brother up for something like this i think she would have been concerned that no one could take care of her little boy the way that she could and and so there would have been the need for her to understand we do care i completely understand that at MCRC we and really any um, recruitment facility for research study we do want the person to feel better right? That is the hope. That's why we're doing any of this so that it spreads out to the community at large. And at the same time, that is not our goal, right? We're pure research. We want to know what the the science behind what we're doing is eventually it has to be understood by family members that again we're, we're just science there has to be a part of them that knows that you're just doing this for research you're not going to care about my family member when they're gone so why should I even bother right we'll just wait for the testing to be done we'll wait for other people to do the testing to do to go through the research you know we'll reap those benefits in the future and I, I get it I totally do but if you could just meet the people that are here. Yes, they are research scientists. Yes, they are doctors, but they have their own family, right? I mean... Hopefully through this podcast, and thank you so much, Mallory, to to help share our side of it as well. I can't stress it enough. We really do care. We have um, taken great steps to making sure that when you walk through the door, you're you're greeted at a personal level. There's handshakes. You know, we can I know we had COVID, so that was difficult during that time. But there's um, there's handshakes. People really look you in the eye and tell you how things are. They're not sugarcoating anything for you. They believe in the research. They believe in the studies that they're doing. Just on a a smaller level, the TKA study I alluded to earlier, the whole reason we're looking at a total knee replacement is because we know, I guess we could call it an epidemic, the the opioid crisis is. And so we're we're researching medication line that is non-opioid based because we've had family members that, you know, have, have fallen to that crisis. I, I hate to say trust us, but give us the opportunity to to care for your family. I think you'll be impressed that we have that capacity.
0: Thank you, Marcus. And before we go, I want to ask, what is one last thing that you wish people could know about clinical research and recruitment? Ooh,
1: one last thing. You know, I think I would ask you to, uh, as a community, be patient with us, please. I think it's wonderful how many of you are so interested in what we do and that you want to help us. And so if you do want to be part of a clinical trial, we want you here. Please re- return our calls, reply to our text messages. If you can, show up for the appointments. I know, I know, I know sometimes it's hard just to get off the couch. So if you if you need it in that moment, uh, just... Give us a a quick text message or something like that. Let us know, hey, we just, today is not the day and we will happily reschedule for you. We are just that understanding. We need you as much as you need our help. And I think together we can make this community a a much better place. and, And that starts with good communication.
0: Marcus, this has been wonderful. And I want to thank you again for your openness and candidness about this topic that is sometimes difficult to talk about, especially when you have a loved one involved and you bring such an interesting perspective to the table. So thank you for showing us both sides of that and really being honest and transparent with us about clinical research and recruitment. We're so appreciative of the work that you do and that Midwest Clinical Research does.
1: It's really been my pleasure, Mallory. Thank you for this
0: opportunity. If you have any questions or comments about today's podcast, please feel free to reach out to me at mallory at the star with two r's.org. You can also email me any questions that you may have for Marcus at mallory at the subject line ask Marcus. Visit our website at thestar.org for more resources on mental health research. Thank you for listening.